Welcome to Guys Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Let me make sure my settings are right with my audio because uh, I've been changing things quite a lot. It looks like they are not. All right, let's try this absolutely again. I have just changed a lot of features on my my uh, computer, so I installed a new new power device, and so I have to reconfigure everything. And so that's probably why you couldn't hear me, and then I had to readjust things to get us back in the spirit. But uh, I am Christopher Fisher, and uh, I am the host of God is Open here, and today we're going to be discussing this this channel orchard hills bible church now orchard hills bible church is a podcast i came across when i go uh, jogging every once in a while you know i i, I kind of like to listen to things and and this just came on my radar is one of the podcasts i didn't know they had a youtube channel so i pulled up their youtube channel and all of a sudden it's uh this guy you know, um, and this guy's doing actually a fine job of representing open theism. What what this this uh, sermon is is it's a sermon against open theism, but they spend the first half trying to accurately represent open theism, and they did actually a very good job. And so this is not a cringe cast. These guys do a good job, but but you see from uh, the the picture here. Let me blow that up. They got uh, a jacket on that says, hey, we're going to represent open theism, but I'm going to wear this jacket that says says I'm a wolf in sheep's clothes. That means everything we're saying here, just don't agree with it. And then to be extra sure, they take a little strip underneath their video and say, this is not our teaching of the Bible. And But they do a decent job representing a philosophical case for open theism. So I, I'm not going to fault them there. There's there's probably some nuanced nuanced things that I could criticize. But once they start getting into the actual sermon part and then discussing open theism, that's where everything goes downhill. So that's about uh, the 10.30 mark. We're going to actually switch to the podcast version because I think the audio is a little bit louder on the podcast version. So I'm going to switch that out. So it, this was an interesting presentation. Um, they did a good job. They asked. They they didn't allow their people to ask questions, which is is kind of weird. They said we'll get to those questions about those issues about open theism, and then they never did. And so uh, they probably just ran out of time. I'm not going to fault them there. But uh, let's go back and share their podcast. And we're at about 10.30 is where they start actually talking about open theism. 
We'll see if we can't get that right. We're we're on Apple Podcasts. I don't know if that's going to work. It was working for me earlier. Come on, work for me. Maybe I have to refresh the page. We'll we'll try it. If not, we'll go go back to the. Uh, this morning we're going to. There be we doing go. No input on our. And God can say what others will do too. All right. Because God that. About ten thirty uh, is where it switches. Who I am, not I was who I was, or I will be who I will be, but I am, um, which is a if if God is in the past, you guys remember. Uh, we're, we'll uh, probably. This morning we're going to be doing. A, <laughs> I just reset. Oh, thank you, Apple Podcasts. A, putting God within the same perspective that that we're within, we have to first off start off with the understanding that God is not a man like we are. Right? God is different from who we are. So they set up their hermeneutic. This is the first thing they do. And so they're they're prepping their audience. They're, they're saying the way we read the Bible is that because God is not like us, that means every time the Bible says anything about God, we have to reinterpret it in these different lenses. And what, what are those lenses? They're, feel, they're philosophical preconceptions about God, right? This, this is how they read the Bible. The Bible can't be taken at plain text. If it says God repents, there's no combination of words, if found in the Bible, uh, that will convince them that God actually repents because all that language has to be dismissed. Why? Because they got this other model, this philosophical construct. All that language cannot mean the things that that language states. The Bible cannot be worded to state that God changes his mind. They got their philosophical constructs. They're prepping their audience for this. They're saying, anytime you come across any of these verses that, that say these things that might contradict your theology, just know that your theology takes precedence. That's what's happening here. This, this is a common tactic. And by the way, he did ask at one point, if, if God is in the past, you guys remember when Jesus said in John 8 that before Abraham was, I am, he chose those words very specifically, didn't he, to mimic the the words from uh the father from from god in exodus 3 14 where he said that i am who i am not i was who i was or i will be who i will be but i am um which is so this is an interesting claim so they they seem to be unfamiliar with the language actually employed in exodus 3 14 they say this is very specifically i am who i am not i will be who i will be which that's actually the opposite of the case. The Jonathan Sachs notes that there's there's a future tense that's within the original language that's just not present in the English translations. Uh, that, that that phrase is actually "I will be who I will be." And the more accurate Greek texts, there's a lot of different Greek uh, translations going around in the first centuries. The more accurate ones have a future tense for those passages. I think it's the the Aquila and the, the Theodone translations which were better than the Septuagint the Septuagint fell into disuse because it wasn't like a one-for-one -one word translation it, it wasn't as useful for Jews who actually cared about the biblical text so they switched to these versions and guess what those versions had the future tense I will be who I will be there is a future tense there and if you actually look at the context what they're actually doing here is a common strategy by the Calvinistic types, the non-open theist types. I'm not sure if these guys are, are Calvin. I mean, they might be Calvinists. I, I might have missed that. But uh, a common strategy is truth-making by storytelling. So they're quoting a verse. They're not talking about the context. And they just tell a story about what they think that text means. 
And then the audience just has to accept it, right? Uh, they say in Exodus 3.14, God says, I am who I am. And that means, and then they give a story. There's no exploration of the context. Who's God talking to? What is he communicating? How does that tie into the overall narrative? Anything like that? You, you don't you don't get that in-depth discussion. It's just we have a, a little proof text, a little phrase that we could just pull out of context and we could talk about it for a bit. And once we talk about this little phrase for a bit, that means it is whatever we say it is, right? I don't I don't know if they've they probably not dealt with any open theists on this passage. And if they have, chances are that the open theists would probably agree with their translation, but not not necessarily their interpretation. But th this these are things to look for. Truth making by storytelling. Grab a small phrase. If you talk enough about that phrase, then that phrase means whatever you want. And here's the problem. So if if they're the ones introducing the proof text, uh an alternative narration, like, like, let's say I'm introducing a proof text and I say, well, okay, here says God repented. And then they say, well, how about this as an alternate reading, other than open theism, we can explain that verse by being an anthropomorphism. Okay. Um, that might be, they, they've just, they're just refuting my proof text by offering an alternative reading of the proof text. Okay, we could go back and forth and talk about that. Say, hey, which one is more accurate? Which one makes better sense in context? Uh, is there anything that's uh, that's pulling to your your reading of this verse over mine? You look at you look at the context and try to merit out which has the best reading. But they don't do that when they're proof texting here. They're actually giving some sort of meta-narrative, meta-commentary that's not present in the actual proof text that, they, that they're pulling out. They turn to Malachi and say, I, the Lord, do not change. They just pull out half a verse. They don't even do the whole verse. They pull off, out half a verse, and then they do a meta-commentary. Oh, this means God has these metaphysical attributes where God can't change. God, God can't vary. This is his essence. I think in this very podcast that they, they do talk about Malachi, Malachi 3 in that way. It's devoid of context. There's nothing in the context that would suggest it. It is truth-making by storytelling. If you talk long enough about a, a little phrase, that means it is whatever they narrate to their audience. It's a, a reference uh, separated from, from time. It's not dependent upon time. So this relatively new understanding of open theism, it hasn't been around for, for all that long. That in and of itself doesn't necessarily make it wrong, but it does perhaps make it more suspect. We need to ask, well, why is this new understanding, uh, a new understanding? Why are people adopting this new understanding? And I want to point out two central axioms or, or starting points that open theism seems to be centered around. Um, they seem to formulate their whole understanding, their whole theology around these two points. One is that uh, man is absolutely autonomous. I don't know anyone who claims this. So it's like, who are you interacting with where you're getting this definition? Man is absolutely autonomous, right? It's like, uh, what is that? What is that even supposed to mean? It's like my kids aren't even autonomous. I go tell them to clean their room, uh, to go rake leaves, things like that. 
I, I don't think anyone's claiming this except for you. And they're they're actually teaching to an audience. That they're, they're, they're styling themselves as teachers, informing their audience about open theism. It doesn't seem that they've done they've they have done some basic research because they present an opening case that mirrors open theistic thought, but then when they start explaining open theism, it goes off the rails. You have to wonder where the disconnect is. Is this or their their own interpretation in their own head? It's it's insane. It 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 doesn't add up. That we can do whatever we want. We have absolute uh, free will, and God has no input on our lives on our decisions. God has no input in our lives. We have absolute free will. God has no input on our lives and decisions. Find me an open theist who claims that. Not even Thomas Ord. Thomas Ord says that God can influence. God works with us. People like that. It's like there, there's no version of open theism. You have to really get into process theism before you start getting into God has no influence over people's life. It's they're making it up. They, it, I, I don't know where they're getting this from. They're they're not they're not quoting any open theists. That's something they hold on to. Something that they really treasure and they really they really uh, treasure. Want. I don't know anyone, any open theist who claims these things. And he says, this is something that they really treasure. Right. Um, so I don't, I don't feel like these people are being dishonest. I feel like this guy really believes the things that he's saying. They're just off the wall insane. It's like they, they've made up a reality in their own head that does not exist. To have as a truth in their, their worldview. Secondly, is that God is 100% hands-off in his relationship to sin. Not only to, to sin as we would understand it, but to uh, destruction, to calamity, to sickness, to pain, to suffering, to war, that God is. So this is like ultimate straw manning. It's like God is 100%, 100% hands-off in regards to sin. You're making this up. You've just fabricated. You're, you're, uh, I, I hate to say it. I, it sounds like you're lying. Whatever you think you've read from open theists to be interpreted in that way is probably false, friend. I th you're you might be unintentionally lying. It, you're you're defaming open theists. No one believes that. Zero people that I know believe that God is a hundred percent hands off when it comes to sin. I don't even think Thomas Ord would take that position. Again, um, so the the first half of this podcast. It was going good. They were representing open theism uh, well, uh, not 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 perfectly, but pretty well, good enough. And then they go into this, and it just completely falls apart. It's night and day. Absolutely, one hundred percent hands off in this. So they say, man is autonomous. God is one hundred percent innocent, and we can kind of uh, see why those might be good things to to seek. Yeah. So. <laughs> Sounds like a Calvinist to me, Roddy writes. And they probably are Calvinists. I think I might remember some statements they made that are very Calvinistic. Let's say I was representing Calvinism. And I said, Calvinism is when God rapes people, like like little kids and uh, just everyone. He just, just rapes them all day and has fun doing it and just loves it. You know, is that like a, is that like an honest and accurate representation of Calvinism? Yeah, not really. It's but it, you you could see that it's true in a sense that Calvinists do believe that everything that happens is to God's greatest glory, 
and uh, that means all, all rapes and everything like that, all murderers and and uh, torturing, everything like that, is to God's greatest glory. And so you can make a few steps of logic to get to that point, right? But it's it's not an accurate representation of what they believe. Um, these guys are just. If I was saying that about Calvinism, they'd probably take pretty severe issue with that. But that's what they're doing here. It's it's chapter, but in an, an attempt to make scripture cohesive with these two teachings, they pervert not only millennia of orthodox teaching throughout the church and interpretation of scripture, but clear teaching throughout the whole of scripture. And so um, I just want to go through several aspects of God that they uh, tend to deny. So many open theists will redefine the scope of creation. Uh, the heretic that was just up here was talking about how God is outside of time, how time is somehow over God, that God didn't create God, or God didn't create time, but time is just a, a byproduct of creation. Well, we look at John 1, 3, it says that all things came into being through Jesus, right? In the beginning. Yeah, so does that mean like, uh, are they talking about like things like that you could touch and feel? Or wh what are they talking about? Are they talking about concepts like mathematics, laws of logic, those things, or even conceptual ideas? All things even include conceptual ideas that don't have physical reality, right? The idea of... um happiness or, or the idea of uh, satisfaction are like intangibles. Is that what that verse is talking about? Is there any discussion of the context to even try to prove those things? No, I, I think it's just talking about creation. Everything that exists uh, was made by God. Everything that has tangible existence, abstract concepts don't have tangible existence. I don't think that's what they're talking about. And again, within the Bible, you see generalities all the time, right? was a word the word was with yeah for example god exists right so god created himself is that is that your claim is that your claim uh orchard hills bible church probably not you're gonna carve out exceptions based on your priorities and your standards but um but everything it this verse if you if you pull out a verse and you talk about it long enough then it means what you claim right we we got this little phrase We'll pull it out of the chapter. We'll talk about it for a couple paragraphs. And that's our proof text. It means what we claim. There's no, look at this. There's no discussion of context. There's no discussion of, well, in this passage, uh, here's here's what's happening, who's being talked to. And, and in context, this is how it fits. Nothing like that. This is truth making by storytelling. God, the word was God. All things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. The open theists would say, well, time hasn't come into being, so that's why God didn't create it. Um, but that's not sufficient because Colossians 1.16 says, for by him all things were created. Everything, all things, right? And then it goes on and it specifies both in heaven and on earth, things visible and invisible, like time. time. <laughs> well, is God invisible? Because uh, the Bible does say God is invisible, so God must have created himself, right? But here's the thing. It's, it's, it's just like a special pleading thing. This, this, we have this verse, it must mean our thing. Um, guess what? And we also claim time is a thing and time is tangible. What, what, what evidence 
do these people have that anyone in the ancient world viewed time as fungible, like time as something to be created rather than just an aspect of reality? What evidence is there of that? This is this is a very modern notion. Time travel, reversing time, um, being outside of time. These are these are modern notions. You get a little bit with Plato and Neoplatonists, and these guys are taking up the Neoplatonic tradition. But show me where in the Bible or other Semitic cultures where, where time works like this. You could reverse time or something like that, or or jump out of time and come back into time. They don't have anything. The, the Will Duffy debate about timelessness was was great because he points out to his opponent. The opponent keeps saying, "Oh, this verse means God is timeless." Yeah, but your verse actually says God's in time. A thousand years is like a day, and a day is like a thousand years. Both both of those are time. It's saying one thing's like another. It's it's God experiencing time. This is this is about God being in time, the exact opposite of your claims that God is outside of time. And then then his opponent was like, he's like, uh, well, it can be read in a timeless sense. He's like, yeah, but the problem is you actually don't have a proof text for your claims. You have nothing there that states anything what you're claiming. The Bible just doesn't have these claims. These, these claims are not part of this world. And the guy's he, he doesn't know what to say. Like none of none of his proof texts, when looked at, make any claims of what he's saying. He has to do this truth making by storytelling. You grab the phrase out. If you talk about the phrase long enough, then it means what you claim. Time is invisible. It was created by uh, Christ here specifically, right? But created by God. Whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. In addition to redefining the scope of God. Warren's here. Warren, can you hear me? Can you, can you not hear the podcast? Uh, Idol says, is he muted? God's creation, uh, open theism, also robs God of his transcendence. Uh, it, again, as I said, brings God down on our level. It doesn't understand God to be above and, and outside and beyond, to be over all things, um, this verse in Isaiah 55, this common verse, verses 8 and 9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, my ways are not your ways, declares the Lord. For the heavens are higher. All right. Uh, it looks like uh, this is airing out on me. 1444. So uh, I'll just, uh, well, maybe maybe I'll start playing again. But I don't think uh, Apple Podcasts likes me hitting uh play and pause all the time but we're at uh 1444 let's talk about that they they just did that whole truth making by storytelling and they they took a phrase that my ways or are not your ways my thoughts are not your thoughts but they didn't talk about context who's talking who are they talking to what's being communicated what's happening in the passage you look at the passage god's talking to like people about his mercy he, he's going to show mercy where human beings wouldn't show mercy and in that way his ways are not like human ways right it's 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 not hard it's it's not like this is rocket science but what they do is they need a proof text and so they see a phrase and they say we could use this phrase for our ideology <laughs> uh, or it says now i can hear carry on fantastic well i did have audio problems earlier because uh of a new new computer configuration but going back to that proof text, it's like they need they need a narrative. 
they need some sort of evidence or illusion to, to make that narrative, give it some weight. And so they find a phrase within the Bible that kind of says something um, that they can work with that's malleable. And it's, then they make a mini sermonette based on that excerpt. Truth making by storytelling. That's all these guys do. They don't look at the context. They don't look what's going on. They don't look at uh, alternate readings or alternate understandings. They don't even consult open theist readings of those texts or how open theists have interacted with those texts. And so what I like to do is since now I have a wide uh, repertoire of uh, explaining and talking about verses, when people try to do this, uh, what about is like, I'll be talking about something and they'll throw out, hey, what about this? Paul says that we're all predestined. Oh, here's a little video on that. It doesn't mean what you're claiming. Now back to the point at hand, this verse in context means the things I'm claiming because you look at the context and what's going on and how that contributes to the overall narrative. And that's how you know what it's saying. You don't do this, grab a verse over somewhere else and just talk about it a little bit out of context and just assume it means whatever you're claiming. That's that's not how we do Bible. You do you, That's how you do Bible if you don't actually care about the text. But it's not how s serious people do uh, biblical this scholarship. We're gonna be doing, yeah, talking uh, about... This morning we're going to be doing a... Talking about that. Yeah, that there's a Chris Date debate recently, and which reminded me of his appalling use of proof texting uh, that God inhabits eternity. Remember, that was his claim. Uh, he has a little phrase, pulls it out of context, and just says, it says here, God inhabits eternity. Well, not all translations say that. What actually recommends your translation rather than other translations, right? W where else is this used like this in the Bible? It's, it's not. The, the exact phrase is used in the Bible, of human beings inhabiting the land forever, but you'll say, oh, that's not the exact phrase because uh, there's there's different, uh, it's a gender number case or different case or something like that. Um, but it's, it's used of man. It's not used of God anywhere else. And there's nothing in context that talks about God being outside of time. He needs a proof text. So he grabs a small little phrase and just gives us a paragraph about it. It's truth making by storytelling. All right, maybe we could get back on track here. Our friends were at uh, 1440, and uh, the slider here is really small, so we'll try to get on there. My there we go. My thoughts are higher above your thoughts. My ways are higher above your ways. We have to have that basic understanding of who God is, that he is completely otherly from who we are before we ever try to seek to. So what are they doing to their audience? They're priming them. Here's how you treat the Bible. Again, anytime you come across anything in the Bible, that doesn't look like uh, your theology. Just understand that we have this way of viewing everything within the Bible to fit our narrative, right? Is it, It's unfalsifiable. That's another problem about these theologies is they're unfalsifiable, uh, meaning the Bible could say any combination of words and it wouldn't, it wouldn't actually sway them from their position. There's, there's nothing that the Bible could say to, to teach them something different about God than what they already believe. They're training their audience to think like this. This is not a good way. This is not a scholarly way to treat the text. Let the text speak for itself. Look look at how language is used, how it functions, what, what's happening in context. That's how we come to what certain passages mean. To understand God, his relationship with us, his relationship with his creation and with time. 
And in robbing God of his transcendence, open theism also uh, misrepresents God's imminence. So they, they look at uh, emotionally loaded language. It's like, oh, you're robbing God of his eminence. Yeah, these, these, are, these are constructs. These are ad hoc constructs. <laughs> Going back to the Will Duffy debate with that guy about timelessness, the guy's like, well, there's transcendence and there's eminence. And, he, and Will Duffy's like, that, these are not biblical categories. Th these, are not like, these are not like actual things that you're talking about. You're just making up categories. It's, it, uh, it's, it's, it's ad hoc category creation. They, they can't actually deal with the text. And so they have to compartmentalize the text in order to selectively dismiss the text that they don't like. A better way to treat the Bible is treat all texts as legitimate and try to figure out in context possibilities and probabilities of the meaning of the various texts. Uh, the fact that God is near, that he is with us. Yes, God has entered into his world. He has humbled himself uh, to the point of death, even death on a cross, below angels. And he has uh, taken on appearance as one of his creatures. He is not far off, but his imminence, his, his closeness, his relativeness to us doesn't negate his transcendence. The fact that he is above us, that he is far superior. The ironic thing is that they had already talked about open theism and talked about a case for God being, quote unquote, in time. And the audience wanted to interact on those points. And then they cut them off and they didn't let them. They didn't let him do it. To us. Listen to this verse from, from Hebrews 1, verse 3. Again, common verse. It says that he is, speaking about Jesus, he, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact... Yeah, Brian writes that this is the difference between truth and ideas. Platonism is really Hinduism in which you ascend to God through ideas rather than truth. And yeah, that's 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 actually fairly accurate. So I think as Ammonius Sactus had had Eastern mysticism that, that was taught to him. And who are his disciples? Origin of Alexandria and uh, Plotinus. It's some eminent Neoplatonist. Uh, even, even Christians like uh, Eusebius in his histories is talking about origin. He's like, even these pagans agree that uh, origin was really good at Platonism. He's studying all these Platonist philosophers and was well-esteemed in Platonism. Like this is his praise. Eusebius is praising Origen for being insteeped in Platonism. And uh, Porphyry, the Neoplatonist disciple of Plotinus, is saying, these Christians, they go to the Bible, and the Bible doesn't say anything that they're claiming. And uh, they'll take these, these barbaric texts that say one thing, and they'll give them crazy spiritual interpretations, just like some of the Greeks do with Homer. You know, they, they learn this from the Greeks and they're applying it to the Bible. The Bible doesn't say any of these things, and they're just going, they're going crazy, they're going nuts. And that was a criticism of by Porphyry, and it was praised by Eusebius. It's really funny. And yeah, and that's that all just as Brian says, a lot of that comes through into, into Greek thought through Eastern Hinduism or, or from India. These ideas are flowing over and merging with existing Greek thought. Representation of his nature, and he upholds all things by the word of his power. And when he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So, 
So this language is actually pretty common, um, that God or Jesus sits down at the right hand of God. In, in their minds, this can't happen. Jesus can't sit down at the right hand of God because God doesn't have a body, right? God, God can't be located in heaven along. Jesus would be like the body of God in this system rather than the, the normal semantic, semitic, semitic concept that God inhabits heaven and operates a court where he interacts with angels and other deities, and even Jesus. There, there's so many references within the Bible to Jesus sitting on the right hand of God, sitting at the right hand of his throne, them occupying space together. Um, even in the early Christians, if you look at uh, Polycarp's writing, he also references this throne. This is a fairly common idea. It just It doesn't work in classical theism because... Um, their understanding of Trinity can't operate on on that level, right? And so even that they have to, quote unquote, anthropomorphize. They have to claim that that doesn't actually mean the things that it's saying. And there's just no evidence that the authors of the text actually rejected, like they do, the things that are being talked about. So I, it's an interesting proof text for them to use, a proof text that just explicitly, it's, it's like people who say, yeah, God has omniscience over all things past, present, and future, because here's a verse where God watches all things on earth. Yeah, okay, so watching is present, watching is gaining information. It's the exact opposite of what you're claiming. Your proof text refutes, it's not often where you're in a debate about a certain subject, and the person's own proof text that they're using to prove their ideas is actually evidence against their ideas, right? Like if you're if you're debating like let's say gun stats or something like that or or crime and gun ownership, you might be like, well, look at Sweden or look at Norway and and look at these and look at Australia and versus the U.S. and England and and you have to just kind of like work it out and say, hey, your stats don't quite work because it's cross country comparison and look at the demographics differences and if you compare England to a similarly sized population, let's say Minnesota, then you can compare murder rates and things like that. You kind of duke out what the data is. So it's not often that that the people you're debating with are quoting stats that are actually in your favor that you could just say, hey, your proof texts are actually proof of my views, if you just look at your own proof text, it's not often that happens, but it happens often in the open theist debates, because again, they are, they are verse doing verse theology. They're, they're grabbing little snippets of little verses to try to prove something out of context. And all you have to do is look at what's happening in context and those, their proofs fall apart and their proofs actually say something opposite of what they're claiming. Look at that Isaiah 40 through 48 debate that I had. Uh, the idea there, the Calvinist says, this is Calvinism. This is God controlling all things. Like, you know, you look at what's going on. God is literally trying to convince people um, it, futility, in futility. He's trying to convince these people to worship him rather than the false gods. And he's doing that by presenting evidence for them, for them to evaluate and make a decision and talking about things he's done in the past. And he's telling them new things that he's just came up with that he's going to do to prove these things to them. It's the opposite of Calvinism. It's the opposite of, of what they're trying to claim. Their own proof texts are against them. He is majestic. He is transcendent. And this speaks of his transcendence, even in the, the midst of his... Is imminence even in 
the midst of his work on earth after making purification for sins. He again sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He was returned to that glory that he had with God. Yeah, Jeff here, he's talking about Plato trying to make a perfect society. He's saying he, uh, he gets the idea that Plato wanted to make a God that pacifies the masses. Yeah, Plato in his Republic states that he would ban all stories of the Greek gods. He wanted to build this perfect society. I think he actually petitioned like uh, some sort of ruler to do that. And the ruler is just like, no, I'm not going to do that. That's stupid. And then didn't do that. So Plato, I think, was very offended by the Greek myths. And, you know, for better or worse. But uh, so I, I do think Pla Plato was legitimate in his beliefs. He wasn't like lying or trying to manipulate masses. He actually believed the things he's saying. Before uh, John 17, verse 5, uh, God is both transcendent and imminent. These ideas aren't contradictory, but they blend together beautifully throughout the Bible if we have a correct understanding of it. Uh, open theism also perverts this idea, the, the doctrine of the aseity of God. God's aseity speaks to the fact that he is... Right, right. I remember that part of the Bible where they're talking about God's aseity, uh, God's simplicity, God be partless. I, I'm sure that exists in the Bible somewhere. Ah, man, open theism assaults that definite biblical doctrine that definitely exists somewhere. That he is independent. That he doesn't need anybody else. Um, open theism will say that... Um, as was just mentioned, that not not only does aseity mean he doesn't need anyone else, but he can't gain from outside himself. And so our prayers to God cannot be responded to. There just has to be some sort of coincidental, divine, eternal response that happens to line up with our prayers. And in that way, our prayers are responded to. But he can't actually gain insight or knowledge or use it our prayers as a determining factor for his response he can't respond that's what a saity means god has no potentiality god's not potent god can't do things god is eternally fated to be pure actuality all that exists with no potentiality god can't be other than what he is and god can't respond to prayers that's really what that's teaching. And so every time in the Bible where it talks about God listening to us and responding to prayers and considering our input, and even, even against his better judgment, answering prayers, every time the Bible talks like that, that that's against the satiety. That That's throwing out this idea of divine simplicity, God, God being partless, anything like that. They, didn't, they had no conception of this. That's the thing. It's like so foreign to the Bible. And, and these people... Unless you're actually talking to a philosopher like uh, Dwezel or something, they'll they'll try to use this flowery language to kind of kind of hide the true meaning of the theological terms that they're using. They're not explaining. If they said aseity means God can't respond to prayers, or if they point that out, they'd be losing a lot of their audience. Their audience would be like, "That doesn't that doesn't sound right. It doesn't. I I read the Bible and it looks like throughout the Bible God responds to prayers that that." Hmm. Maybe maybe the society thing is suspect, but they, they could they they chalk up a society to oh God doesn't need things. Yeah, God doesn't really. Need, it's not like God 
quote unquote needs things. God likes things. God sings over us. God wants our worship. People bargain with God and talk to God and God gets enjoyment out of us. God sings to us, things like that within the Bible all the time. But they'll read a little phrase, maybe Paul says it, that uh, God doesn't need our, our workmanship or whatever, our things built with human hands. They'll be like, that means in this platonic sense that he has divine simplicity and aseity and uh, can't gain from outside himself anything. That's not what he's talking. That's not what Paul's talking about. What are you talking about? Paul in Romans 8 talks about God gaining information about his creation. He says, if you don't know what to pray for, um, just consider this, that the Holy Spirit is always searching you to try to figure out what you need and communicates that information to God. And so God knows what you need before you, before you uh, ask for it, right? God gains from outside of himself as is Paul's idea. It's pretty consistent. So it's a, it's a huge misreading of Paul to claim that Paul was involved anyway with this pure actuality aseity simplicity god needs to kind of manipulate different things and by the way this explanation of the manipulation of judas and how god has to manipulate these things i think first of all it it undermines these two foundational axioms that open theism tries to be built upon upon the autonomy of man of man uh, how autonomous was judas if god is able to manipulate him um and the the idea that god is trying to stay 100% away from sin that he has absolutely no he said those those are again this this is them setting the straw man ablaze they said open theism the most cherished things in open theism is that uh god has to be 100% hands off when it comes to sin he doesn't get involved and he just lets sin happen and then man's 100% autonomy it's like nobody believes this you've made this up you've fabricated this in your own head uh, what are you, Orchard Hills Bible Church? You you made this up. It's just false. Uh, you're you're telling people lies, and, and I, I think they believe it. I think they actually believe it. But you're telling people lies and professing to be authorities on this issue. You're liars. Involvement in sin. Um, God is the the ultimate cause behind everything. He is the one who uh, is behind everything. He is not the author of sin, um, but he uses sin sinlessly and. That explanation undermines those two foundational points, but it also makes God. I always think it's funny to ask Calvinists, what does author mean? <laughs> and then that they struggle because any definition they give for author would implicate God in being the author of sin. So it, it's a, like a meaningless word. It's a meaningless phrase for them to say, God is not the author of sin. It's meaningless. It, do, it does not have meaning. They, they can't give it meaning because if they define it, then then they have to live by that definition, you know? God dependent upon man. It makes... Uh... It'd be like Matt Walsh. He makes a movie like, what is a woman? Uh, what is author? And he goes to all these different authors. He's like, wow, um, I looked at the dictionary and the dictionary says this about being an author. Do you believe what this dictionary says? And they'll be like, no, that dictionary is not a theological dictionary. And so we just have to understand that God's not the author of sin. It's like, what does that mean exactly? And they'll be like, well, oh, I feel being it where you, you are interviewing us on false pretenses here. It's like, you just don't, you won't understand. You know, author just means you're guilty of the sin, which God is not. He's like, well, I get that. Um, but what is, what is author? How, how do you define it? Can you define it? The Matt Walsh documentary, what is an author?
It'd be an interesting one. Uh, his understanding contingent upon man's understanding and man's actions, which are, are fleeting and, and ever-changing. And God is dependent upon the, the actions and the, the motives of his creatures. Wow, Apple Podcast uh, just just plays me like that, right? All right, let's refresh again on Apple Podcast. Try to figure out uh, where we were. Mind of the Lord, or who has been His counselor? And in effect, if God is kind of waiting for these free will decisions to be made by man, He's responding to these different. Right. Uh, this morning we're going to be doing. A lot of people have been God's counselor throughout the Bible. And so maybe in the answer to the rhetorical question, who has been God's counselor? We could be like, well, Moses kind of counseled God in Exodus 32 and, and Abraham. So rhetorical questions are typically a pointed question for a specific point to a specific people at a specific point of time. It doesn't mean that there's like no answer or, or the answer might be more nuanced than they're claiming. You come across who has been God's counselor. Well, how about the divine counsel for one? Ooh, counsel's God all the time. God says, how do we kill this King Ahab guy? And all sorts of people offer advice. It happens within the Bible, right? And so maybe the answer to rhetorical questions, the point of rhetorical questions is not what you're assuming. That's, that's not how language works. It's not, it's not sitting down a metaphysical absolute. It might be giving a very nuanced point in a specific situation to a specific people. Maybe it's saying, you guys don't know right from wrong. You guys aren't going to tell God what to do. You guys don't have that authority. It, and, and maybe it might not be saying Moses didn't have that authority. It might not be saying Abraham didn't have that authority. It might not be saying divine counsel didn't have that authority, right? So maybe you guys are misreading your own proof text. He has absolutely no involvement in sin. Um, God is the, the ultimate cause behind everything. He is the one who... Uh, is behind everything. He is not the author of sin, um, but he uses sin sinlessly. And that explanation undermines those two foundational points, but it also makes God dependent upon man. It makes uh, his understanding contingent upon man's understanding and man's actions, which are, are fleeting and, and ever-changing. And God is dependent upon the, the actions and the, the motives of his creatures. Uh, that so notice also this strategy, it's a, kind of like an argument by implication, right? It's the moralistic fallacy or argument uh, by consequence fallacy. It, if open theism was true, these bad things which we don't like would also be true. And then, you know, uh, whether or not those bad things actually logically follow is a different question whatsoever. Or, But it, it's an argument by emotions. We don't want this thing to be true. And so... You shouldn't believe this thing. Yeah, a moralistic fallacy. Doesn't lead to a God who is self-sufficient. It also limits God in his omniscience, that he knows everything. First John 3.20 says that God is greater than our hearts and knows all things. And they would understand that quite differently. <laughs> oh, well, yeah. So my Matt Slick story actually is irrelevant. I haven't told the Matt Slick story in a while, so I'll go ahead and do that again. He was at the Will Duffy debate, debating Will Duffy. Then afterwards, I, I, or I'm talking to him in person, and it's like me and my sister and her husband, and we're, we're talking about this. He's like, First uh, John 3.20, God knows everything. I said, First John 2.20, man knows everything. And he flips back. And it's the same phrase in his Bible. 
because he's using like the new King James or something like that. I don't know. And he gets he gets all frustrated and worried, and he runs over to his computer and starts banging away. His, his computer is like up on stage, so he had to he had to go like like a full twenty yards or whatever to get to that his computer, and he's banging away. It's like it doesn't say that in this version. It doesn't say that in this version. And I said, yeah, it's it's in it's in the majority text. He had no idea what I was talking about. He did he, he doesn't he doesn't. It, at the time, he didn't seem to understand the difference between the critical text, the Westcott Hort, and the Byzantine majority text. And he's still clicking like, it doesn't say that. He, I think he was looking through different English versions. And uh, that basically, that's his argument. Um, but here's the thing. In the Byzantine text, the majority text, it's not like the authors thought that mankind was omniscient. This is just a normal phrase used in a normal way. It doesn't, it's not automatically preloaded with all their presuppositions of whatever meanings in that. It's it's just not there. And that's like uh, th being the dishonest, disingenuous guy he was. He comes back the following day. He's like, well, if anyone wants to learn about uh, the, the phrase uh, panontos or whatever, um, uh, we could do a Bible study after this. It's like, you little weasel. You went back to your room that night. You looked into it. And you got some sort of counter argument put together, and then you're gonna maybe it's like shower thoughts. It's like you're you're in a debate, and you don't say the things you want, and then you're in the shower the next day. You're like, oh, I should have said this. And he's coming back to us with his sh shower thoughts. He's like, oh man, I should have said this and this and this. So maybe I got time to get those things in and uh, present myself as an expert because I I didn't look like an expert the previous day when I did the. These guys aren't, that's like, these guys uh, are uh, Orchard Hills Bible Church. I don't think they've interacted with Open Theist. They probably watched things online. And that's how our first dude, dude, it's two different guys. The guy who did the first part of this podcast was able to accurately represent kind of the ideas of Open Theism. But our second guy, he's just, he's just way out there. Uh, Isaiah 40 verse 13 says, who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? And in effect, if God is, kind of waiting for these free will decisions to be made by man, he's responding to these different things, um, then he is kind of being counseled. He is being lead, led and directed by us that we kind of take that position of authority and we get to be the ones who, who guide and determine the outcome of our lives. And God is just left to respond, to react. And ultimately, I think the, the biggest issue with open theism is that it doesn't understand, therefore it denies the immutability of God, the fact that God cannot change. It, it, it doesn't understand, and so therefore it denies. Oh, if, if you only understood our position, you would accept it. There's no good faith disagreement. You, you have, in order to reject your position, you just have to not understand the position. I think this is the most disingenuous framing of any issue you, you often come across it's like if you just understood our calvinist position uh you'd be a calvinist the reason that you're not a calvinist is because you just don't understand calvinism it's like i could pass myself off as a calvinist to any calvinist group indefinitely it's 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 not that i don't understand your position i understand it better than you uh going back to that survey that i did on that calvinist page do you affirm divine simplicity over 100 votes and half was like yes and the other half was like never heard of it and they never heard of it they never heard of their own theology 
Oh, fantastic. Doesn't understand that, that aspect that God is unchanging, that he is mutable. It will assert that God is responding and reacting to man's free will decisions in real time, changing his mind or even informing uh, God as to previously unknown information that he's acquiring from his creatures, which is just so backwards from how scripture presents God and his all-knowing uh, ah, reality. Ah, it will oh, so any, any uh, statement within the Bible that talks about God's omniscience or knowing all things or the extent of his knowledge, any reference like that, which is included with a mechanism by which it states how God knows, uh, none of them are are an appeal to this Greek philosophical concept of omniscience, right? It says God in Ezekiel, he says, hey, hey, you guys think you're doing these things in secret? That's incorrect. God sees sees what you're doing, right? He sees, he acquires information. It says that God is watching uh, what men are doing. Hebrews states it, Psalms states it. God watches to know. God, God, God sees what you're doing. And so Anytime there's a mechanism given, oh, uh, the John Singleton video in which he's like, this is the best proof text against open theism that God knows this thing that's going to happen. And I think he's quoting Deuteronomy, something like that. And his, his, his own friends in the comments are like, yeah, but it actually states in context how God knows that thing in the future. And it says, because I know your hearts. So it doesn't that contradict your claims that this is some sort of proof for eternal, ungenerated, uh, non-discursive, innate, exhaustive knowledge of all things past, present, because the mechanism is given in the verse, and it's, it's not that. It's it's not traditional omniscience. It's like, so anytime there's a mechanism given, um, yeah, it that it, it's, it's a defeater for their position. Their own proof text defeat them. And then anytime a mechanism's not given, they have to be like, they do this thing where it's like, oh, man. How could this be unless God had eternal, ungenerated, non-discursive, uh, simple, innate, uh, exhaustive knowledge of all past, present? What is the other alternative besides that is, is what they have to do if there's mechanisms not ex explicitly stated in the verse. It's like, how about we turn to all the times that the mechanism is stated and grab one of those? How about that? Have you guys ever thought about that? Maybe, maybe we could look at when the mechanism is cited huh guys oh it's so funny oh it's i it just cracks me up the 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 the, the hoops that they have to jump through to maintain their position on, on the, these bible verses it's just so funny kind of straw man christianity to say that um god doesn't change in any way ever we we believe that, right? That God doesn't change, but we wouldn't say that God doesn't change in, in any way whatsoever. And then they'll say, well, what about passages like Exodus 32, where Moses prayed for his people and then God changed his mind? Or Watch what, what they do Jonah here. Chapter Watch what they do. Where, where God was going to come in, he was going to completely destroy Nineveh. And then they repented and God relented. He changed his mind. Well, what about that? We see there examples of God changing. Uh, well, I have... Okay, so what would you expect an honest person to do? If you they cared about the Bible and you're honest, you'd say, well, let's let's turn to the context of those examples and see how what it says, where it's going, and uh, here's an alternative way to understand it. What what do you think actually happens? I got to go hit play. What do you think actually happens? If if you've guessed proof text trumping, 
you're right. It's like you say, hey, what about this situation in which God's changing his mind? They're like, have you seen this other random proof text over here, which definitely contradicts yours? Yeah, that that that's my response. Here, four specific ways from, from Lewis Burkhoff. He mentions four specific ways in which God doesn't change. He doesn't change in his being, in his attributes, in his purposes, or his promises. Uh, we know that God doesn't change in his being, right? Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Uh, he doesn't change in his... All right, so that that is another example of proof text being self-defeaters. And so Jesus, we knew, no, we know he had a body, um, he had bodily functions. Uh, he grew up. He grew in wisdom and in favor with God. He, he uh, assumedly, in Mark thirteen thirty two, he eventually learned when the end times are going to be, if if they were at all set at any time after that, right? And so Jesus changes all the time. This this, this Hebrews reference is a reference to Jesus, and Jesus changed all the time. So it's probably not the proof text that they're looking for, for absolute immutability. And so there's, there's no discussion of the context of Hebrews. What's happening in Hebrews? You turn to Hebrews and it seems to me like, like the people at the time, the audience of Hebrews who is rejecting Jesus as an integral part of the gospel. It's like, you know, Jesus has been dead for a while. It's like, uh, probably not important. And then you have this uh, Hebrews being written, talking about Jesus's place in the gospel, in salvation, in world history, these types of ideas saying Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, day of forever. It's probably a reference to his position and not that he's not going to fade into obscurity and not going to be important anymore. That's what it reads like to me. And so I think someone like Heiser would probably take that position as well. Uh, I'll have to reacquaint myself with Heiser's uh, Hebrew commentary, but but it's like I'm not the only one. His attributes and and who he is and, and what he does. James 1.17 says every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from our Father above, um, with whom there is no shadow of change. There is no shadow of, of shifting within God. God doesn't They believe that the bad things come from God too. And so that that's pretty funny. Um, but what what does that mean in context? There's there's no shadow, there's no turning in God. It sounds to me about God's faithfulness. God will remain faithful. It might even be a reference to Malachi 3, uh, where God says, I change not, therefore you're not destroyed. Return to me, and then I'll return to you. It, it could be pulling on those, those uh, traditional concepts of God's steadfast character. It sounds like a character statement. Change in his purposes. Isaiah 46.10 says that God who is declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things that have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. And then you turn to the context and he says, I told you guys in the beginning, this is not like some uncreated beginning that he's declaring into the void. It's like, I, I've told you guys this previously in the beginning. And when's the beginning? When he's starting to do these things. And I told you so that once it happens, you're going to know it was me who did it. Right? And so... It's, again, it's this uh, truth-making by storytelling. Grab a small phrase, pull it out of context. There, there's no discussion of what does this mean in context, the people it's being said to, what in the context actually speaks to our interpretation of this idea rather than someone else's. There's no discussion like that, right? If I do, a, if I do a, probably a podcast on Exodus 32, 
I'm going to go in in detail talking about who's saying what to whom, what's the sequence of events, what are possibilities, uh, how how does how does how does each individual idea contribute to the overall narrative? It's going to be in depth. Do you think they they've done that with Isaiah? Isaiah 40 through 48, who, who's talking, who are they talking to, why, what's going on in context? God is trying to convince people to worship him. He put himself on trial with them as the judge. No, that doesn't sound like Calvinism. That doesn't sound like a saity. It sounds like God is getting input from outside himself. It sounds like God's getting frustrated with his people in the very context of the verse that they're citing. Context is the Calvinist killer. God does what he wants because he is God, not because he's um, good at guessing the future, not because he's able to manipulate us, uh, but because those are his purposes which were established before time began. And God doesn't change in his promises. Malachi 3.6 says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. Yeah, I don't know who he's quoting. I think he's quoting Burkoff or uh, uh, one of these other Calvinist uh, systematic theologians. He's already listed it. But that, that is correct. That is what Malachi 3 is talking about, that God is consistent in his promise, specifically in context, his promise to Israel to make of them a great nation, nation his promises to Abraham, which is, that's the actual reoccurring promise in the Bible that's talked about over and over again, this idea that Israel would have some sort of heritage. It's talked about Exodus 32. That's what the entire argument on the mountain is, on Mount Sinai, between Moses and God. It's in reference to this promise. This is John the Baptist when he's arguing with the Pharisees in reference to this promise. If you're just reading through the Bible, I, I've, I've found so many references to this promise. It's just reoccurring. I think I started making a list somewhere, but uh, I'll have to pull that up. So. so God makes promises, and he's able to keep those promises. He's able to make these prophecies, again, not because they're solely dependent upon him and his actions, but because he's able to step into time and um, he's in control of all things, that there's nothing that takes... Stepping into time doesn't sound like a saity, pure actuality. You guys might want to rethink your, your phrasing there, friends. ...place without God giving his, his permission for that. We see in Acts... Um, either chapter two or chapter four, that um, those people that came up against Jesus, um, Pontius Pilate and Herod and all the Gentiles and the Jews, that God was predestined. Uh-oh. Apple is, Apple hates me. Maybe I should find a different podcast player than Apple. We'll try uh, to figure out where we are. We're be mentions four specific ways in which, a way that we can understand because he is so transcendent and so... Uh, unsearchable. His ways are so unknowable, so far above our ways that he has to condescend to us, to our level, and speak to us in a way that it's kind of like uh, this morning we're going to be doing a. Yeah, it always likes to reset on me. It's kind of like this sanctimonious blather. It's like if I talk enough and it sounds nice enough or holy enough, if I put enough buzzwords in it, that means it's it's definitely true, right? Did I use all the right words? Did did I make you feel nice inside? about how lofty and great our ideas are it, it seems to be i it, it almost feels uh I, there's some podcasts here oh here we go uh, greg writes uh he sounds uncomfortable like he knows he's full of it right it's it's almost like that they don't believe the own their own things that they're saying that they, they kind of feel like oh man how do we sell this and then they have to try to sell it 
and kind of like a salesmanship way, right? They have to think about their, their phrasing and their narrative and how to put it together in the best possible light and, and hide the small details. Pure Sadi, uh, God being simplicity means God doesn't respond to prayers. We'll hide those details. Um, that that doesn't actually come that that doesn't help us. So we're not going to say anything that doesn't help our case. And then we'll we'll contradict ourselves throughout our statements about God entering time and God doing things and receiving from outside Himself. But then at the same time affirm this aseity. Uh, it's like so you could have your cake and eat it too. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what your theology is. You could just. You could just contradict yourself all day long. That's fine. As long as it sounds nice to our audience. If our audience walks away feeling nice, that they got a warm fuzzy in their feeling saying that was a biblical sermon. They call themselves Orchard Hill Bible Church, right? If we got a warm fuzzy in our us that it's biblical, you, you use enough uh, buzzwords. It's like, okay, um, yes, uh, immutability, acidity, and and uh, people walk out saying, "Wow, that was such a biblical sermon. I feel so biblically enlightened." That that was over. That was over Proverbs eighteen seventeen, right? That's what the name of this is. They're like that. That's a Bible verse, right? Wow, this was a this is a very biblical sermon. The Bible was referenced. That um, those people that came up against Jesus, um, Pontius Pilate and Herod, and all the Gentiles and the Jews, that God was predestined. He was purposing all those things. He was working all those things together for his purposes. Each one of those people or groups of people were being um, led and directed by God for his purpose, for his will. Another thing that we need to keep in mind when dealing with open theists is that they will um, take and, and twist a lot of the language that we see in scripture. We have to remember that. Uh, they'll, they'll take and twist the language that we see. They're probably like, oh, um, the open theists, they point to proof texts like God sees things and then say, look, see, that's God seeing things. It's, that's not your definition of omniscience. They're like, you're just twisting language. He doesn't give examples. So we just have to speculate. Um, one, God is separate from us, right? He is both transcendent and imminent. He is above us. And yet he has entered into his creation. And yet he speaks to us in a way that we can understand. He uses language that is anthropomorphic. It's a, a big word to say that God speaks to us in a way that we can understand. So when he talks about in the, the beginning or um, uses references to time as, such as before or after, we have to understand that he is speaking to us in a way that we can understand because he... Yeah, that, that's important to know. It's uh, Burkhoff. Uh, am I thinking of the right individual? I'll, I'll have to pull it up. Uh, but he, he points out there's no actual thing as foreknowledge within Calvinism. I'll pull up the actual reference. Um, it's not Burkhoff. It's uh, the other guy. Why is there not foreknowledge in Calvinism? It's because it doesn't exist with a God who's timeless, right? And so things like predestination and foreknowledge or anything that's tensed doesn't actually apply to God. Uh, who is it? It's uh, dogmatic, dogmatic. Theology. Uh, what's the guy's name? I don't know the guy's name. I'll look for it. I'll play this guy. He is so transcendent and so uh, unsearchable. His ways are so unknowable, so far above our ways, that he has to condescend to us, to our level, and speak to us in a way that we can understand. And lastly, uh, I just want us to think about and consider the consequences about having 
a God who is mutable, a God who is changeable, who is able to be changed. That would be a, a terrifying God. That is a God that is much more akin to uh, the God of Islam than to our God. In in Islam, they'll say even the most faithful follower of, of yeah, uh, the is Islamic people are very very much Platonist. Uh, like they praised Aristotle, they claimed Aristotle as one of their own. Predestination is one of the pillars of Islam. I don't know where he's getting his information about Islam from, but they basically affirm the quote unquote transcendent God of Calvinism. Uh, that's what that's what normal Islamic scholarship are is going to. I could be wrong. Maybe I'm way out here. But uh, from what I understand, they they'll they'll affirm all the omnis and the ms of God, Allah, uh, who uh, gives up their life in in jihad in the holy war that they can get to to heaven and God can say, oh, I'm just I'm having a bad day, so you're condemned forever, right? Um, that God is so flippant, and if we serve a God who is changeable, it would be very much akin to to that kind of God that if he could become even 1% less holy than he once was, then what's stopping him from becoming 5 or 10 or 100% less holy? If God is unchangeable, then even our, our salvation isn't certain. Then one day we could get to heaven. He could say, oh yeah, well, that promise that I made that um, you are bought with the blood of Christ, that's no longer relevant. That's that's old news, right? I've, I've changed. I've grown. I've matured since then. So anything that you... So Bavink, Bavink was the guy I was looking for that I couldn't remember off the top of my head. Reformed dogmatics. Uh, Bavink says that there's no such thing as foreknowledge in Calvinism. Um, predestination, those are non-concepts. God, God has nothing that applies to him. But our friend here from Orchard Hills Bible Church is basically doing an emotional appeal. Oh, if God can change, if my wife could change, that means she could hurt me internally. Uh, the implications of, of a changeable wife are just awful. So you better just go out and buy like like dolls, like full-size dolls, rather than marry a changeable lady who can change because plastic dolls don't change, right? Right, men? They don't change. They can't hurt us. They can't They can't bear children that will grow up to be murderers and thieves and, and disappoint us on a fundamental level, uh, become artists and musicians rather than engineers, right? Oh man, the, the pain and, and hurt inside that can be had if you marry a changeable wife. So men, the plastic dolls, I just life-size, bring them to the theater, drive them around in your car, bring them to work functions. They won't hurt you. They, they can't hurt you. They're immutable. They, they will make you feel good inside. They'll never age. They'll never get old. These plastic dolls, man, I'm telling you, is the wave of the future. <laughs> TB9K says, Inshallah. Oh, man. <laughs> As God wills. You are, are hoping anything that you are um, banking upon, even if it's in me or in, in my attributes, my character, that, that's out the window. We don't serve a God who can change. We serve a God who is unchanging. We serve a God who is outside and above time. Uh, who is the creator of time. Um, and we really need to be careful of this kind of teaching of open theism because it's becoming more and more popular and it can creep into um, different channels of, of teaching that we might be consuming. Now, 
any thoughts or questions on open theism. All right. So again, this is not a cringe cast be because the first part of the podcast was actually pretty decent. Uh, they're like, uh, imagine uh, there's no such thing as like time travel and and uh, everything is present. The past doesn't actually exist. It only exists in memory, things like that. And so the, the first part is actually pretty good. But then they go into this weird thing where they, they build up a weird representation of open theism as being some like absolute dedication to free will and God not being involved in the, in the world events. It's, it, and it goes, it goes just downhill from that. Well, that, that's probably the nadir nadir. The low point is probably when they make those claims, but it's, I, I guess it's a little bit uphill if that's the nadir, but it, it, not, not very much uphill not very much uphill from that nadir. Um, it, it's still pretty low. I don't think they didn't, they're on Proverbs 18, 17. I don't think they talked about it at all. <laughs> uh, Greg writes uh, the dollhouse. Oh man. Oh, so funny. I think I'll, I, I'll have to use that example more often is uh, uh, like marrying a plastic life-size woman figurine, like, like some sort of weird recluse, you know, these guys who, who yeah, because it's, it's so illustrative of what they're afraid of. They, they don't want God to change. If God could change, God can hurt us. And that would be, that would make me so sad. It would be the worst thing. And, and all the things that God promises to do, he wouldn't have to do them. Right. Never mind that they don't they don't actually believe the things that they're saying. And so you'll have people like Matt Slick, whose daughter apostatized. It's like he he was fully convinced that she was one of the elect, one that was going to be with him in heaven. And now he's not so sure. It's like their their world's up end just as quickly as anyone else's. It's not like it, it they might be able to console themselves. Oh man, this is this is God's will that my children might not be saved. And uh, and they're rebelling, and I'm, I just won't see them in heaven. Thing about that, in the Bible, uh, we were talking on a previous podcast about blood relationship and how people were defined by their associates in a family unit. They were judged as a family. And so people like Noah and Lot, their families are saved on their behalf. They're, they're righteous enough. They have enough uh, familiarity with God and enough pull that their family gets saved because of their works, their deeds. This is reversed a lot later where God says, uh, you guys are so wicked that people will only be saved on account of themselves and their family won't as well. But historically within the Bible, families are saved on behalf of individuals who are in with God, as, as you'll say. So Maybe if you have an unbelieving child, maybe you could get God to save that child regardless because of uh, maybe how he feels in relation to you. And you actually have that in, uh, I was talking to Dov Weiss. There's a good interview with him. And uh, I don't know if it was in the interview or it's in his book. His book is actually excellent to read as well called Pious, Pious Irreverence. It's about people who argue with God and debate with God. And in Jewish literature, Jewish commentary on the Bible, Jewish, uh, the, the Talmud, uh, these types of uh, ideas, there, there's this concept where people, <laughs> there's children who die on behalf of their 
parents, right? The, the children are punished for the sins of the parents. And so once they get into the, the heaven realm, uh, the realm of death or whatnot, they converse with God and they convince God to save the parents for the sake of the children, right? So it's like we got punished for their sake. They could be saved for our sake. And so it is an idea that fa of family salvation or group salvation or one person being able to use their pull with God in order to save family members. It's not, it's not to, let's say it's, it's not non-germane to the Bible. It is a concept in the Bible. And it's, it's a concept that excites me very much uh, that you can save loved ones uh, through your relationship with God. So Brian Wilson writes, you're right about Islam and Calvinism. God doesn't really forgive. He, he authors all things. Hence saying, although Akbar at everything, man is actually more moral than God. Authoritarianism is God, etc. And, and uh, uh, I was reading, uh, what, what's my, my latest book? It's about the Crusades and talking about Islam and the rise of Islam. And one of the arguments in the book is that anything that's claimed as innovation and technology for Islam typically has older roots, like Persian roots or Indian roots. And it was it was taken over by Islam, and then Islam got the credit for inventing it, like the Arabic numerals. Not really an Islamic invention, but it is like Persian yeah, or origins, things like that. And they point out that even philosophy was taken over by Islam. They, they claimed Aristotle as basically a true believer in Islam, even though he's not, you know, uh, but they claimed all his ideas were it, part of Islam. And so, yeah, um, I would not doubt that Islam has the same conception of deity as Calvinism. So I guess I'd wonder uh, why Calvinism would be adversarial towards Islam if they're worshiping the same creator. Is it just the Jesus factor? Is it is it just different conceptions of Jesus? Why why you guys aren't aren't good buddies? I don't know. <laughs> Open theists eat puppies, Roddy writes. Oh, good times. But anyways, I guess uh, out of this discussion, we we got a new illustration to to mock the Calvinist insecurity about God's immutability. Uh, get it, getting a plastic unchangeable wife. That's pretty good. Um, I don't. I don't see too much new from their podcast. So I don't think they gave too much novel points. They did novelly suggest that open theists' basic tenets are are things that are completely false, right? That God's or God has is completely hands off when it comes to sin. And that man's completely autonomous in open theism. I never knew this, so maybe they're educating me. Um, I don't know who am I. Just maybe the best-selling open theist author currently on on Amazon. It's not that I sell very many books. It's just like open theism is not a popular topic, and so like my book goes to the top. But uh, it should be good. All right, Johnny writes: either everything is a miracle or nothing is. You can't have it both ways, Albert Einstein. Yeah, I'm not a big Albert Einstein fan, but that works. All right, we'll we'll end there. It's an interesting conversation with Orchard Hill Bible Church. And uh, if they want to actually interact with an open theist, I'm always always willing to interact with individuals. I don't think they have interacted with open theists. It's, it's, it's very some very weird claims going on there and some, some basic due diligence that hasn't been followed in their presentation. 
and maybe it's purposeful. Uh, you don't know. Maybe. <laughs> All right. Well, they, any questions or comments, put that down below or start a thread on the God is Open Facebook page. Thank you for listening.